0: The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. Well, good morning, good morning. How's everybody doing? All right, good. Hey, hey can we just all agree, we have some extraordinary talents, extraordinarily talented people in our church. Um, our creative team... <clears throat> Our creative team went out to the desert this week and they filmed um, uh, that little bumper video and they came back and the next morning we were like, how did it go? And they were like, uh, it was good, but it wasn't great. And I was like, shut up. And when I saw this, I'm like, shut up. That was amazing. That's so good. And uh, I'm excited that you guys will be able to get to see some of the talents in our church in this series. We've got a, I didn't tell the first service this, but we've got a newly formed story team that's going to uh, provide content for this series too. And we're really, really excited about it. Hey, uh, we're glad you're here this morning. My name is Matt. If you're here for the first time, thank you for being here. It's a real honor that you'd give us some time on a Sunday morning, and uh, you stepped into a brand new series that we're starting today. And that series is called "This Absurd Life." We're gonna walk through the Book of Ecclesiastes together in the Old Testament. So, if you happen to bring a Bible with you today, go ahead and open up to the Book of Ecclesiastes, uh, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. We're gonna get there in just a minute. We're gonna start in chapter one. Okay, uh, let me pray for us, and then we're just gonna jump right into it. Lord, thank you for today. God, this is your word. Thank you, uh, God, that you love us enough um, to speak to us. And uh, God, I pray that you speak directly this morning um, as we read your word. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Hey, have any of you guys read um, Steve Jobs' biography? Anybody read that biography? Um, I I love entrepreneurs. I love um, to read about the stories of successful businessman. And um, Steve Jobs's biography was written by a guy by the name of Walter Isaacson. And, um, and so in reading Steve Jobs's biography, we find out that early on in his life, by the way, Steve Jobs, founder of Apple, I didn't say that, but I assume you know it. And so, uh, and so early on in his life, um, his biography tells us that, uh, that Jobs was an atheist. He didn't believe there was a God. And so he sort of had this perspective that all of atheists should have about life, and that is that this is all there is. And if this is all there is, then I just should live it and maximize it to the best of my ability. And so in his biography, Walter Isaacson um, records Steve Jobs discussing this. And this is what Jobs says. He says, I saw my life as an ark and that it would end, and compared to that, nothing mattered. I mean, that's the, if you're an atheist, if you don't believe in God, um, that's the perspective you should have, that, that it's going to end, and, and all we have is what we have right now. And so Jobs goes on, and he says, you're born alone, you're going to die alone, and does anything else really matter? I mean, what is it exactly that you have to lose, Steve? He's having a conversation with himself, you know? There's nothing. And then Steve Jobs gets cancer, And his perspective begins to change, and his biographer tells us that Steve Jobs narrates in his backyard one day as they're sort of recording content for his book. He says, Jobs said, I'm I'm now 50-50 on God. There may be a God, there may not be a God, and it just depends on the day. And so he explains his shift, and Jobs says, maybe it's because I want to believe in an afterlife, um, that when you die, it doesn't just all disappear, right? Um, this is post-success. This is post-Apple blowing up. This is post Jobs being a billionaire. And he's accomplished all of this stuff. That when you die, it doesn't just all disappear, the wisdom you've accumulated. Somehow, Job says, it lives on. He wants to believe. It just lives on. But sometimes, I think, it's just like the on-off switch. Click, and you're gone. And that's why I don't like putting an on-off switch on Apple devices. I don't know if you knew that or not. There's not an on-off device. Uh, it wasn't originally designed that way. And the reason for that was because Jobs says, I don't like to think of life as sort of like I'm gone and everything I've accomplished, everything I've accumulated, everything I'm done, I've done has now no benefit to me. And so he's like, that, that, that's why I didn't put an on-off switch on the iPhone. And so Jobs' experience in life is very similar to how most of us, as we get older, process life. We process death. We process life. We've, we've had life experiences. And just like Steve Jobs, we begin to look over our shoulder, and we're like, okay, what was the point of all of that, I had a conversation just now in the lobby after the first service with a guy who's like, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm at that point in life, like I'm in the midlife point. I, I went by the McLaren dealership this weekend. And I'm like, I should just buy this, right? Like, like most of us will get to that point, and we ask questions like Jobs asked, what? is the point. Um, James Wood wrote an article in the New Yorker magazine, August 15th, 2011. He's interviewing atheists and agnostics about their view and their perspective of life. <clears throat> and one of the pre- persons that he quotes was an atheist, and, uh, and, and just like everybody, even the most uh, starch proponents and champions of atheism eventually experience this sort of inward protest, like like what is the meaning of life? Is there anything to this? Is there a higher meaning? And so he quotes one of his friends and he says, I have a friend, an analytic philosopher and convinced atheist who told me that she sometimes wakes in the middle of the night anxiously turning over a series of ultimate questions. And these were her questions. How can it be that this world is a result of an accidental Big Bang? How could there be no design, no metaphysical purpose? Can it be that every life, listen to what she says, beginning with my own, my husband's, my child's, spreading outward is cosmically irrelevant. And then she goes on to say, But as one gets older, and parents and peers begin to die, and obituaries in the newspaper are no longer missives from a faraway place, but now their local letters and one's own projects seem ever more pointless and ephemeral, such moments of terror and incomprehension seem more frequent and more piercing, and I find as likely to arise in the middle of the night as the middle of the day. Have you ever been at that point? Have you ever had that experience in life? Or maybe you know someone who's come to that point in life where you begin to look over your shoulder and you just ask some really difficult questions. What is the point? So we get to this book in the Old Testament called Ecclesiastes, written by a guy uh, by the name of Solomon. And the perspective that we have in Ecclesiastes is the perspective of this man who's disillusioned with life and he's making these observations from his own experience. He's near the end of his life, and and so Solomon's this older man, and he's getting reflective, and he looks over his shoulder. He says, what's all this about? What was the point? What are my regrets? What was it all worth it? And so when we're getting into Ecclesiastes, commentators would tell us there's really two theories about the writing of this book. And one theory is that Solomon, um, King David's son, the one who built the temple, the one through whom Jesus' bloodline would, would run, Solomon was that author from beginning to end. And so we know that early on in Solomon's life, he pursued God later in his life. Um, he walked away from God. And now we have a book, a record at the end of his life, as he's looking over the entire thing. And as we read it, um, the one perspective on authorship here says that Solomon was the author, and he's writing from that gamut of perspective. Another, another perspective of the authorship of this book is that Solomon wrote it, and, and, we, and, and, and Solomon's perspective was the perspective under the sun, like the first six chapters. Um, like, it's going to be a while until we get to a place where this seems like, is, is this really in the Bible? Because it's difficult to process. It's difficult to comprehend. And and so one perspective is that Solomon wrote it, but he didn't write everything. An editor later came in and said, yeah, you're too pessimistic. You're too cynical. You're too fatalistic. Let me give a different and alternating perspective from what you have just shared, right? And so Solomon not only authored the book of Ecclesiastes, by the way, this is all introductory. It's good stuff that we need to know as we get into this book. And we're going to spend a few weeks together in it. And so Solomon didn't just write um, Ecclesiastes. Solomon also wrote a book called The Song of Solomon. If you've ever read it, it's a, it's a, it reads sort of like a romance novel between a man and his Shulamite maiden. And, uh, and it's graphic, and I love it. It's amazing. And so, uh, and so he writes from this perspective of a faithful lover of God. And then he also writes a book called Proverbs. Both Song of Solomon and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are what are considered wisdom books in scripture. There are five wisdom books, including Psalms and the book of Job. And so Solomon writes three of those wisdom books. And if you read the book of Proverbs, which comes before Ecclesiastes, and we assume Solomon wrote it earlier in life, you hear this perspective of a wise teacher. And so if you've ever read the book of Proverbs, you you hear this extraordinarily practical wisdom for life. Life. like this Proverbs chapter 22 verse 6 Train a child in the way he should go and when he is old he will do what what will he do he will not what depart from it that's what Proverbs says you're like oh wow that's that's really good and then you read Proverbs chapter 10 and Solomon says this Lazy people are soon poor but yet hard workers will eventually be rich you're like wow that's that's really good wisdom I should not be lazy and you get, you get all of this practical wisdom that Solomon writes in the book of Proverbs. And then you get to the other wisdom book in Job. And you find this man who is pursuing God. Chapter one. He's a man after God's heart. And yet from chapter two onward, a man who did everything right, everything goes wrong. And so when we read the book of Ecclesiastes, what we find is even the wisdom that Solomon is about to share, it's not foolproof, right? Like, you know, you probably, if you've been around long enough, you know somebody who raised a child in a home that loved Jesus. And all they wanted was for that child to grow up in a home that loved Jesus. Yet when they got old, they walked away from Jesus. Don't you know people like that? You're like, wait a minute, the Proverbs said, if I raise him in a home, they love God. And when he's old, he will not depart from it. But yet we know people who have. And then, yet, we also know people who uh, have never worked a day in their life. I have a friend who was in town this weekend from Atlanta. He told me this weekend, I have a cousin in New York City who inherited $95 million a few years ago. He's never worked a day in his life. He's got a $16 million apartment in New York City. He's about to buy a house in California. He's got a self driving car. Like, he has everything. He's never worked a day in his life. Yet, Proverbs says, the lazy will soon be poor and the hard workers will eventually be rich. And we're like, wait a minute, that does not make sense. The hard workers should have that. The lazy people should be. No, no, no. But yet sometimes when we read all of this wisdom that Solomon proposes to us, we must realize that it's not foolproof. And we read the book of Ecclesiastes, what we're going to come to, this resolution that we're going to come to, is that it's going to rattle some of our perspectives of God. Like if you have this neat and tidy perspective of God, like God, I read your Proverbs, I read one a day because there's 31 and I read one chapter every uh, day. So God, I'm following you. And if I've got this neat, tidy view of God, God, if I do a good thing, you're going to do B blessing thing. At some point, that wisdom is going to break down and it's just not going to work like you thought. And so this book is going to rattle some of our cages. It's going to shatter that perspective. Like even if I do good things, sometimes life is going to seem meaningless. And so Solomon's writing this book of Ecclesiastes. And at some point, just like Solomon reached in his life, the vanity of life is going to smack you in the face too. You're going to get to this place where you're like, this, this, what, what is the purpose here? This seems absurd. It's going to hit the fan. You're not... Going to be ready for it if you don't have the perspective that Solomon desires to share here in the scripture. You're going to be mad at God. You're going to say, God, I did this, you didn't do that. Do you even exist? I, I can't stand you, God. And so this morning, as we jump into the book of Ecclesiastes, it's really important for us to understand that even the best wisdom, and this is a wisdom book, is not always foolproof because sometimes life doesn't go according to plan. And at that point, we can say, does Ecclesiastes have anything to say to us about trusting God when life doesn't make sense? So here's what I want to do. Um, that was sort of the introduction. And I want to do this. I want to read Ecclesiastes 1 through 11 in the message format. The message format is sort of a paraphrase. It, sometimes as good as you're you're doing deep Bible study, it's sometimes good to kind of take a step back and to read uh, somebody's perspective in a paraphrase form. In a minute, I'm going to go back to a word-to-word translation, but I just want you to listen, okay? I'm not going to put this on the screen. In just a minute, I'm going to put the word-to-word on the screen, okay? Ecclesiastes 1, starting in verse 1. These are the words of the quester. In other words, the person who is seeking meaning and purpose in life. These are the words of the quester, David's son and king in Jerusalem. This is what he says, verse 2. And and you need to understand verse two, because verse two and three, along with uh, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13, are the two most important verses in all of the book, okay? Verse two says, smoke, nothing but smoke. That's what the quester says. There's nothing to anything. It's all smoke. You're like, wow, this is gonna be awesome. Um, What's there to show for a lifetime of work? By the way, he's not just talking about your labor. He's not just talking about your vocation. He's gonna encompass every area of life. What's there to show for a lifetime of work? A lifetime of working your fingers to the bone. One generation goes its way, the next one arrives, he says. But nothing changes. It's business as usual for old planet Earth. The sun comes up, the sun goes down, and it does it again and again the same old round. The wind blows south, the wind blows north, around and around and around it blows, blowing this way and that way, the whirling erratic wind. All the rivers flow into the sea, he says, but the sea never fills up. The rivers keep flowing to the same old place. By the way, verses 4 through 11 seem extremely deep, but when you understand what he's saying here about things that never change, things will never change, and there's nothing that will ever be new. And when you understand what he's saying here, it can begin to give you this perspective of life where you can find meaning. And so he goes on to say, the rivers keep flowing to the same old place. And then they start all over and they do it again. Everything's boring, utterly boring. This is Solomon. Is this Solomon, the King David's son, the one who built the temple? Everything's boring, utterly boring. Boring. No one can find any meaning in it. Boring to the eye, boring to the ear. What was will be again. What happened will happen again. There's nothing new on the earth. He is pessimistic. He is cynical. Some of you people that are cynical love Solomon. Listen, he's saying there's nothing new on earth. Year after year, it's the same old thing. Does someone call out, hey, this is new? Don't get excited, he says. It's the same old story. Nobody remembers what happened yesterday and the things that will happen tomorrow, he says. Nobody will remember them either. <laughs> and, then he ends, and then he ends in verse 11. And you don't count on being remembered either. <laughs> I'm like, wow. This is, this is like, like, if you just read chapter one and you walk away and you're like, what is the point? Cynical, fatalistic. Pessimistic view of life. Now, let's go back to verse one, and let me just say this. If you're new around Story City, um, my preferred way of teaching you on Sunday morning and preaching on Sunday morning is a verse by verse um, um, treatment of the text, and we love that. And I think that's the best way to do it because it tells you that I'm not making up what I'm saying. It also helps you understand how to do good Bible study for yourself. So we're gonna do that throughout the course of Ecclesiastes. But today, I'm not gonna make it all the way to verse 11. I'm only gonna make it to verse three, okay? Verse one, the words of the preacher. This is the literal translation here. The words of the preacher, he calls himself preacher. The Hebrew word here is koheleth. It means this convener of, of people. And it carries this idea not that just somebody's standing on a stage and and he's talking like I'm doing to you. The word actually carries this meaning that he's convening people. And it carries this idea of having a debate in his own mind. As if I was standing up here and I'm presenting an idea and I'm debating it back and forth and I'm the only one debating it and I have questions and concerns and then I reach a practical conclusion. And so he calls himself the quester, the, the preacher, the one who's debating in his own mind. And when you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you are like, wow, this man is such a paradox. Followed God, walked away from God. Now he looks across the whole spectrum and he's like, this makes sense and this doesn't make sense. And he makes these absurd statements. The preacher, the, uh, the one who is the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. Now what's important to know here is Solomon's perspective is not the perspective of just an ordinary Mail carrier, if you will, right? Uh, This is not a, he's not a run of the mill production assistant. He's not a commonplace pastor in Los Angeles. He's not a YouTube artist. Like Solomon's perspective here is the perspective from the apex top of the food chain, right? What we know about Solomon is that he was a man of great wealth. In fact, um, it's said that his attendants would not bring him food served in plates made of silver. He would; They would bring him food served in plates made of gold. Why? Because he said silver was way too commonplace. If you read the book of Kings, it talks about the, the meals that were served to Solomon every single day. They were elaborate. They were lavish like nobody has ever experienced before. He was a man of great wealth. He was also a man of women. Um, the, the scripture tells us that he was married to 700 women. Um, he had... That's weird, but 300, he yeah, had 300 what the scripture calls concubines, like, like people who were not on the same status level as a wife, yet they lived with Solomon, and they were for his pleasure. He was a man of wealth. He was a man of of, of women. He was also a man of wisdom. The book of 1 uh, Kings tells us that um, that that Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 4, God granted Solomon the wisdom that was as massive as, as the, as, the, uh, as the grains of sand on the seashore. And the first king chapter four also tells us that the people that lived under Solomon's rule lived in a time of peace. And it says specifically the reason why there was peace was because Solomon was such a wise man. And, uh, and so he lived with this wisdom. He wrote textbooks. He influenced science. He influenced technology. He was a wise man. In fact, we, uh, we understand it to be that, that no one made a greater impact on the world more than Solomon. Nobody made the world a better place than Solomon. And yet Solomon's gonna question every idea and every pursuit that we have in life, including the idea that if we think we're on this earth for the specific purpose to make the world a better place, he's gonna say that too is absurd. So that's the perspective of the guy that's writing this book. And then he goes on in verse two, and this is what he says. Now verse two is important for you to understand the rest of the book, okay? Um, Verse two, there's one word that's used, but it's used multiple times, okay? Verse 2 says, uh, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. This is a word that's used um, 38 times in the book. The word in Hebrew is called hevel, and hevel carries this idea. By the way, to understand this word is to understand what the whole book is about. You need to understand what he means when he says meaningless. Um, Commentators will tell you it means a lot of different things. It means futility. It means uh, meaningless. It means without purpose. It means no anchor. It means smoke. It means vapor. It means absurd. And then even commentators will go on to say even the conglomeration of all of those words together don't even give it the full meaning of what actually it's trying to convey. So let me try to convey to you the meaning of what Solomon is saying here when he talks about life being meaningless. Um, At Christmas time, my my uh, my mother-in-law gave my daughter um, this bubble machine. It wasn't a machine. It was like a like a pole with with strings on it, and you stuck it in this bucket, and you got it in this I don't know, this syrupy type deal, and uh, and then you pull it out and you pull the string out, and then you ran and it created these huge bubbles. Have you ever seen those things? Um, those are, I, for for a seven-year-old kid, like every kid in the neighborhood. When my daughter started playing, every kid every kid in the neighborhood came over, and so she's she's putting. She's in the bubbles, She's pulling out. And she's running, and these massive bubbles are forming. And then they, they stick together. They peel off of this little stick. And all of a sudden, they start floating away. Without exception, every kid in the neighborhood starts chasing after the bubble, right? Have you seen this? This is chaos. Like, they're chasing after. Like, there's something to it. Like, there's, like it's the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. They're chasing after this bubble. And then they get to it, and what happens? What happens? Boom. It pops, and it goes away. There's nothing there, Right? Um, I don't know if you can remember as a child, uh, when I was a kid, I grew up on the East Coast. We don't really have clouds here, which I'm fine with because the sun just shines brighter and that's awesome. But where I grew up, we had like, like these big fluffy clouds. And as a kid, I would go in the backyard and I would look up at these clouds and I would imagine different shapes and different animals and different things. And, and I would see these clouds and I would like, wow, wonder what that's like. I bet angels lay on those clouds. Right? Like, like it's the ultimate zero gravity bed. Like, like those clouds, wow. And then I took my first airplane ride, right? Remember your first airplane ride? And you, and you fly through these clouds and these things that you thought had all this substance, when you plow right through it, you realize, wow, there was nothing there to begin with, right? This is Solomon's thesis of life. This is the point that Solomon's trying to make. Life seems one way. Life seems one way, but when you plow right through it, you realize there's no substance to it. And that's his thesis. That's, that's the point that he's trying to make. And then the word that he wants to describe that experience as is absurd. He says, you think it's this way, and then you eventually get there, and it's not what you thought, and it's all absurd. And so he uses this word over and over again. In fact, 38 times in this book. It's meaningless. It's a vapor. It's absurdity. The American poet Carl Sandburg compared life to an onion that you peel it off one layer at a time. And then he says, and sometimes you weep, right? Like you peel off a layer of the onion, not knowing what's coming. And then sometimes life is like that. Like you get to the next stage and the next phase of life and the next season of life. You're single. And then you're like, like if I could just get to being married, that's where the substance is. And then you get married, you're like, oh my gosh, not what I thought it was, right? And then you have, you know, if I can just have kids, it'll just bring everything back together. And you have kids, you're like, oh my gosh, this is worse than being single. And so, and, then you're, and, you're, and, it, it all, and you get to every season of life, you're like, oh my gosh, there's where the substance is. There's where my substance is vocationally. There's where my substance is financially. There's where my substance is relationally. And and you get to each successive level and you're like, oh my gosh. And sometimes we weep because it just seems absurd. And Solomon's making this point about life. That all these things we chase after and all these things we pursue are going to seem like absurdity once you finally get there. And Solomon has the perspective to teach us this because Solomon is a cynical Bitter old man. He's wasted his life. He's wasted his life. And the words that he uses about his experience vanity of vanities, meaningless, meaningless, absurdity of absurdity. The message says smoke. It's all smoke. And so is trying to convey this idea that things become vanity when they're put in the place of God. We're not there yet in this book, but I need to go there this morning so I don't leave you at the edge of the cliff and you're ready to jump today, okay? So, so Solomon says, Solomon says, things become vanity, things seem absurd when they're put in the place of God, when those things become the end of your life. Does that make sense to you? Like, like, like when this thing that I've been pursuing and chasing becomes, becomes the ultimate and the end for me, once I finally arrive there, Solomon says, you're gonna realize that is absurdity. <clears throat> Have you ever thought about how everything in life has an end of the road. You ever thought about this? Like, like uh, there was a bunch of high school students in the last service, um, and some of them are probably dating people, and and in high school, like everything, like everything teeters on like this, like this one relationship with him or her. And I hate to break it to you, but 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 that's going to come to an end, right? That's eventually going to come to an end. Um, uh, you're, you're studying. Like if you're in college, you're pursuing a master's degree. I had a friend that got a master's degree yesterday. Um, like you're, you're studying your butt off to get these grades so that you can get to the next level. Guess what? That's gonna come to an end as well. Um, I go to estate sales often. I love going to estate sales. There's not a time that I go to an estate sale that I don't have this thought. Every single time I walk into an estate sale, I went to one this weekend. I met a pastor in November uh, that lives here, lived here in Burbank and he was like 90 and he was an incredibly wise old man. I got his card, I said, going to call you. I want to meet you. And I want to spend some time with you. I got word this week that he passed away and I never got a chance to do that. So I went to his estate sale. They, they, They sold all of his stuff and I walk into the estate sale. And these are the thoughts that I always have when I walk into them. You live, you die, and then people rummage through your stuff to determine the worth of all of the stuff that you've collected, right? Like I always think that, like this person lived however many, 90 years, 40 years, 60 years, then he died. And now I'm rummaging through all the stuff that he owned and collected, right? Like, what's the point? Like, where is it all going? Does it even really matter? Now listen to me. Solomon is proposing some questions in this book that quite honestly, depending on where you are in your stage of life, you may not yet have the courage to ask yourself. Like you may be in in the midst of a pursuit that seems fulfilling to you. I don't know what that is. You're pursuing some sort of financial freedom, and you're like, the, I can see the light at the end of the tunnel, and every ounce of energy is being put into this pursuit. And Solomon is saying, at the end of that pursuit, if that is your end, it's going to seem absurd. And, and so he's writing this book and he's asking questions that most of us are afraid to ask depending on the stage of life. And the questions are this, does this really matter? As we look over our shoulder, everything we've built, everything we've accumulated, everything we've done, we have to ask ourselves, was this worth it? And so he ask that question. Now verse three, and I'm almost done. And this is what he says. Verse three says, Um, What do people gain from all of their labor? By the way, um, we don't just uh, associate labor with this idea of vocation and work. Paul is... Going to be comprehensive in every area of life. Eventually, Paul's going to talk about your pursuit of wisdom. He's going to talk about your pursuit of knowledge, your pursuit vocationally, your pursuit of pleasure and power, your pursuit of stuff. He's even going to address the idea that if you love social justice and you pursue that, and Solomon did. He's going to say, even if you love social justice and your aim is to make the world a better place, I want to tell you, even that is absurd. And we read this book and we're like, wow, wait, this is rattling everything I've thought. Um, a lot of pastors will tell you, a lot of pastors that are much wiser than me will tell you, I've waited years to preach the book of Ecclesiastes because it's incredibly difficult to read and comprehend and apply to our people. So I don't know what that says about me. But, but we're going to plow through the book of Ecclesiastes and I think it has something good for us. Ecclesiastes three, 1 verse 3. This is what he says. Can we can put that back up on the screen just for a moment. What do people gain from all of their labor? at which they toil, and this is the phrase he uses. And we see this phrase 29 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's also important to understanding the book. He says, under the sun. From Solomon's perspective, this is his perspective for how things look under the sun, right? What's over the sun, by the way? I'm asking, what's over the sun? What do we assume that's over the sun? What's there, right? What's there? God. Heaven. And so Solomon is not writing from the the over-the-sun perspective. If we believe the second idea of the authorship here that Solomon wrote, an editor came in and helped give the the over-the-sun perspective, then we realize Solomon is writing from the perspective after the fall in the garden. Everything went haywire, and so Solomon is describing for us what life is like after the fall in the world as we know it, under the sun, with no perspective of God or of heaven and then possibly an editor, or if it really was Solomon, and he came back to God at the end of his life, near the end of the book, he then begins to insert this idea of, and this perspective from over the sun. And so Solomon's unpacking all that. And look, if, if we stopped here, like in verse 11, if we stopped here, the, the, the book seems fatalistic and extremely cynical, extremely cynical. And then we ask, what's the point? But we got to remember something. In the opening pages of Ecclesiastes, this is not God's perspective. This is Solomon's perspective. And his perspective is our perspective because we're standing in the same place. We're under the sun as well. And the perspective from where he's standing, listen, he says, it just seems absurd. It just seems absurd. And look, look, we get that. We understand. Steve Jobs got that. When life got a little more mature, a little more age, a little more difficult, Steve Jobs looked over his shoulder, and he says, I want to believe there's a point in all of this, right? Every atheist gets to this point at some point in life. They're like, "Was, was all of this worth anything? All of us will come to this point in life. Solomon says, I've been running on this wheel forever. Was I going somewhere? Where have I gone? Um, you don't know this because I've never said this, but <clears throat> I, I grew up a, friend, a fan of, of Elvis Presley. Anybody a fan of Elvis Presley? Anybody? Am I the only one? Okay, a few. Um, I, you, you may think I'm weird, but I, I'm, I'll be weird. I'll be the only one on the island who likes Elvis Presley. I loved Elvis for some reason. I have no idea why. And uh, I bought some of his CDs as a kid. Like, uh, and, and, it had, and so I would get in my room and I would listen to these CDs by Elvis Presley. And, he, and, and I, I could sing like all of them. In fact, um, no, I'm not even gonna tell you that. But uh, so <laughs> I would get in my room and and, 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 he, and, I would, and there was this one song that he sang that I just, I would like sing it out loud. And it was a song I think that Frank Sinatra wrote, but, but Elvis, in my opinion, sang it better, okay? And uh, the song was called, I Did It My Way. You ever heard that song? I did it my way, right? Like like he's saying it much better than that, But, but I did it my way. And I would sing that song in my room like I'm getting older and I'm like, I'm gonna do it my way, right? And Elvis did it his way. He got the pink Cadillac, right? He did it his way. And then he died. And today I go over to Studio City and I eat the best ice cream in Los Angeles called McConnell's Ice Cream. You ever had that? Like, you, um, you just have to take my word for it, and it's accurate. It's the best ice cream in Los Angeles, right? And I go over to Studio City or I go to Silver Lake, and I get the same thing every time. I get the Elvis milkshake. The Elvis milkshake is chocolate ganache, it's peanut butter, it's bananas, and it's ice cream. And when I eat peanut butter at home, I eat peanut butter, honey, and banana, because that's how Elvis ate his sandwiches almost every day. And so I go to McConnell's, and I get the Elvis milkshake. And Solomon says, you did it your way. And so what? You're having a milkshake named after a musician that lived 40 years ago? That's it? That's all there is? Like all of my accomplishments, everything I worked for in life, that's it? Even a milkshake? Solomon says, my perspective is one from... Under the sun. And I just need to tell you that from where I stand, this seems absurd. And so Solomon's going to set up two ideas that are important for us for the rest of the book. And then we'll walk through these ideas. And the first idea is this, and I'm almost done. The first idea is this. It's two absurdities. And the first absurdity is this, that it's absurd to think that something in your life will eventually satisfy you. It's absurd to think that something in life will eventually satisfy satisfy you. Solomon goes on to classify and, and, and clarify some of these uh, um, uh, pursuits, right? Like job and, 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 and social justice and pleasures and wisdom and work. And he's going to propose that even those are absurd. Living to make your life, uh, uh, living to make the world a better place, even that is absurd. But yet that's the theme of humanity, right? Like, like I'm never satisfied, never ending dissatisfaction. My appetite for self-satisfaction never ends. And, and verse four through 11, which I don't have time to go through this morning, explains why that happens. You work so hard so that you can retire, right? And then you retire and like six months later, you die because you're no longer working or you're like, I gotta go back to work, right? I've got a father-in-law, he's been retired six months. He's like, I, I, I gotta go back to work. Like, this is what you worked for. You got there, and now you want to go back to where you came from. Why? Never-ending pursuit of satisfaction. It's not going to satisfy. You, you, you work hard. You, you hustle to improve your craft only to get to that point. And you're like, what's the point? I read an article years ago when I came to L.A., three years ago when I came to L.A. about this, this uh, neighborhood um, called uh, around Beverly Crest, I think I'm saying it right. And this LA Times writer said, it's an exclusive neighborhood. Every A-list celebrity that you can think of lives there. They gave me access, guard gated neighborhood. Every house was guard gated. Um, uh, domestic workers walked kids along the, uh, the, 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 the sidewalks with, with guards on each side. And the LA Times writer said, it's the most depressing place I've ever been in my life. You work hard, you get there and you're like, this is absurd, doesn't make sense. By the way, that, that, that's what pornography does. If I could be personal for it, that, 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 that's what pornography does. The promise of satisfaction, right? 70% of men who were in prison for molesting young boys got there because they started with softcore pornography. Didn't satisfy hardcore pornography. Hardcore pornography didn't satisfy the cravings of the flesh, the desires of the flesh take drastic measures, rape, molestation, Things you never thought possible. Why? Never ending pursuit of satisfaction. It's absurd to think anything in life is going to satisfy. Um, have you ever taken the Enneagram test? Have you ever taken that? You know what I'm talking about, the personality test? Have you ever taken the, uh, maybe, maybe the finders? Anybody taken one of those? Do you know what you score on those if you've ever, nobody's ever taken those? Uh, I thought that was a common thing. So I, I've taken both of those and, and I score as achiever. On both of them i 'm achiever that 's what I am and um, and so sometimes people try to assume on me and they try to propose on me that, 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 that this process of planting a church, a growing church by the way, is associated with some sort of pursuit of, of being this large church pastor and this book writer and the speaker and, and I find that funny because because that was who I was before I came here. And I had that experience and I got to this place where I'm like, okay, when I was in seminary, I looked at those guys and that was it. And I got there and guess what I said? This is absurd. And so this process is, for me, has been sort of the return back to that place where I hadn't done any of it. I just start over, I'm brand new and I don't want that. And that's what Solomon is saying. You you make something in your life the end of your life and you plow right through it It's like this big, white, fluffy cloud. It's got no substance, and you're like, this is plainly absurd. And this is where Solomon starts the book of Ecclesiastes. Wow, what a place to start. Life is absurd. Whatever you think is going to satisfy your affections and your longings under the sun will never do what you want them to do. So Solomon goes on in verse 4 through 11 and he begins to talk about these ideas of generations coming and going. And, 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 the, and the, the props may change, the set may change, but, but if you just look over the scope of, of history, humanity's not changed. We're still people and we're gonna die and the next generation's gonna come and it's just, all, it's just the same cycle. Then he goes on to talk about the earth, Right? Like, like, I can make a promise to you today unless Jesus comes back and it's all over. I make a promise to you with 100% certainty. Even if it's cloudy outside, guess what's gonna happen tomorrow morning around 6 a.m. You know what's gonna happen? The sun's gonna come up. Why? Because it's what it's always done. Did it yesterday. It's going to Did it today. It's gonna do it tomorrow. It's what it's always done. Solomon says, nothing ever changes. Then he goes on to talk about the wind. Wind blows from south, north, west, east. Sometimes it changes direction. Over the course of history, wind has always done what it's always done. It blows. Then he goes on to talk about the rain and how the climate uh, works together where moisture falls to the earth. It goes through the rivers down to the sea, yet the sea never fills up. Why? I don't know. That's just the way it's always been. It did it yesterday. It's going to do today. It's going to do tomorrow. Somewhere on the planet, water's going to fall. It's going to go down to the rivers, down to the sea. This is going to repeat the cycle. And Solomon says, you know what? That's what life is like. Nothing ever changes. And he goes to verse 8. He says, and that's why humanity has always wanted something different. Why? Because nothing ever changes. It's boring. It's the same. And so we pursue something else, something new, something different. And Solomon says, there's nothing new. You may be 21 with a great idea for how to impact your world and your industry, but bad news is somebody already had the idea and they lost a lot of money trying. Nothing new. By the way, even if something great happens and you found the the most global, uh, expanding um, phone business in the world, you're gonna get to a point where you're gonna be like, I hope this is not true because it seems absurd. And that's where Solomon starts. And this is the second absurdity, and I'm literally done. He says it's absurd to think that something in life is going to eventually satisfy you. But then he says, we're not there yet, but I need to get you here, because if not, you'll stand on the edge of the cliff. You're like, I'm going home, and I'm quitting my job. I may even quit my family. I'm going to move to Hawaii, and I'm just going to quit, because it doesn't mean anything anyway. So let me get you here before we get there, if you will. It's absurd to think something will eventually satisfy you. But listen to me. It's absurd to think, it's absurd to think that we can never be satisfied. You're like that, wait, what? Wait, what? No, no, see, the first statement was the perspective under the sun. The second statement is the perspective when you can see from over the sun. And that makes all the difference in the world And that makes a difference in how we perceive what we do. You see, if we perceive life as just being monotonous, it's cyclical, and we look over our shoulder, we're like, what's the point? It happened yesterday, it's gonna happen today, it's gonna happen tomorrow. It's just all gonna repeat itself every single day. It's all going to be the same. And we have this perspective from under the sun, like we live in this closed system. Nothing ever changes. And if we live in this closed system, and it's really true that the only perspective in life is from under the sun. All we can see, all we know, everything we plow through seems absurd. If that's the only perspective that we have, then Solomon says this closed system will lead to this idea that you think everything is meaningless and that there's not a God who can step in. Yet, that's not the record of Scripture. That's not the record of the God who interrupts nature. We think, if this is a closed system, God can't answer prayer, He can't hear prayer, there can't be miracles, but God does interrupt nature, and God does hear your prayers, and God does work on behalf of His people. He did so when He held the sun in place for Joshua, so that Joshua could fight an important battle. He did so when He moved the sun back as a sign the king Hezekiah. He did so when he opened up the Red Sea. I preached this last weekend in South Carolina. You open up the Red Sea and the Jordan River for Israel. God did step in when he turned the rain off for Elijah. The New Testament says he turned it back on. There is a God who calmed the wind and the waves when the disciples were in the boat and they were like, this is bananas. So what's the conclusion? When you've been transformed by Jesus, we're not here yet in this in this book, but I need to get you there for a moment. So you leave with hope. When you've been transformed by Jesus, you now have the ability to see over the sun, and you're convinced we don't live in this closed system. It just repeats itself, just cyclical, just monotonous. And this is why Solomon says in Ecclesiastes three eleven he has made everything appropriate in its time he has also set eternity in their hearts that's the thing that you're trying to pursue to give you satisfaction and that's the only thing that will fulfill it nobody finds peace and satisfaction apart from God the eye cannot be satisfied until it sees God the ear cannot be satisfied until it hears the voice of God so what does that mean? That means if you're a believer today with an over-the-sun perspective, you don't just believe that we're prisoners in a closed system. It's eventually gonna die and everything I've worked for is gonna be over. As a believer with a perspective over the sun, we have this perspective that I'm not a prisoner, I'm a pilgrim. I'm a pilgrim journeying through this world. And, and my, my perspective is not that it's gonna be over and, and all was for naught. My perspective is that it's going to continue on. And so that's where Solomon starts the book of Ecclesiastes. Everything is absurd. And he's going to make three conclusions throughout this book that we're going to eventually get to, but you got to be patient. He's going to talk about how absurd your knowledge and wisdom is, your job and your pursuit of justice and, 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 and all of these things. And then he's going to get to the point, whether it's him or the editor, says, yes, but there's another perspective. We're gonna get there. Jesus, thank you for today. God, thank you that the story doesn't end so fatalistic, so cynical, so pessimistic. God, I, I really believe that there are some people and friends in this room who need to hear that today, that your story is not fatalistic. It doesn't have to be cynical. You don't have to be pessimistic. Jesus, I pray as we explore this book of Ecclesiastes, you'd speak deeply to us and help us find meaning. Even as believers, at times when we feel like this is just absurd, I did it the right way, God, and you didn't do this. God, shatter those perceptions. Give us a true reality of who you are, the God that loves us and cares for us, allows us to see from over the sun and the journey that you have us on as pilgrims in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.